Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, and today is Monday. Sorry for the delay on these uh, episodes, our most recent episodes. Last week's snow put us in a bit of a tailspin, as I know it did a lot of people. Loved having that moisture. Loved seeing the white stuff on the sandias and mountain ranges where you live. But it definitely caused some major headaches. I know it took me over three hours to get from work here at the station to the west side of Albuquerque. But I did it, and I did it safely, and so I'm very thankful for that. Hope the same is true for you and yours. Uh, But enough complaining for me. Let's jump right into our content from our most recent on-air show, including some extra bonus content, as we like to bring you here on the podcast. We're going to start with our line opinion panel. And this time around, we have longtime regular and an attorney, Sophie Martin, also an attorney and a safety expert, uh, Ed Perea, and Rebecca Latham. She is the CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico. And if you uh, that perks your interest hearing this time of year, the Girl Scouts, and you're looking for how you can get your Girl Scout cookies this year, we encourage you to go to our Facebook page and look for the warm-up we do for the show called One More Thing. Rebecca's got you covered there. Lots of ways to do that. DoorDash getting involved. Who would have thunk? All right, let's dive into a little harder-hitting content, and that is the legislative session. Also want to let you know, when it comes to the legislature, we have got you covered with the Your New Mexico Government Project we're doing with KUNM, the very talented Kaveh Mahawet over at KUNM. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, a podcast called Your New Mexico Government, YNMG, which you can find on Apple or Spotify, just like this podcast, wherever you get them. You can keep up to date on the legislative session, which is now past the halfway mark. One of the top priorities we know for the governor and many lawmakers has been crime reform, and it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some things starting to move through. The uh, burden of proof on pretrial release is a hot-button one. We've talked about it a lot, and it is uh, moving uh, quite a bit slower. But a big day for that one is it's in two committee meetings today. So if you're interested in that discussion, be sure to check out nmlegis.gov. That's n-m-l-e-g-i-s dot g-o-v. And you can follow the web streams of that today. But let's get caught up with the line folks and their thoughts on the pace and the progress of the cracking down on crime legislation that Governor Michelle Luan Grisham even laid out in her State of the State address. Welcome to our three line panelists this week. We're joined by Rebecca Latham. She is CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico. And attorneys Sophie Martin and Ed Perea, both. we really great to see you all virtually anyway, as we're taping here on this snow day this week. All right, money is clearly the weapon the state hopes does the most damage in the fight against crime. Millions of dollars are tabbed for police departments around the state, both for pay raises and expanded recruiting. A recent study from the Legislative Finance Committee suggests the state is failing to create the certainty of arrests shown to create a significant deterrent to crime. Is addressing that fact the main priority for the governor and lawmakers? And Sophie, let me toss that to you too. It's a very complicated question, but let's just start broadly here. What's, what's your thought there? Yeah, I mean, clearly crime is a top priority for the governor um, in this mm-hmm. in this session. I mean, remember that the, the that we're in one of those years where the focus of the legislature is pretty tight um, and that the governor can ask for additional um, additional initiatives beyond sort of the economic, but um, mm-hmm. so when you say when you say money is the tool, well, this is the, the money session, right? And so we would we would expect that. Um, mm-hmm. But there is quite a lot coming forward, and coming forward a, a lot of it from Democrats, um, which I think makes sense given given the governor's priorities, um, mm-hmm. and it covers a broad range of areas. From you know, on one end looking at pretrial detention and, and what's happening under that that uh, constitutional amendment that was approved several years ago to to protection of, of judges in New Mexico and trying to keep right. crime from subverting the judicial process overall. So we have a lot to look at this year. And it's going to start to parse out here uh, this week and this weekend and next week's going to be very busy for sure. Hey, Ed, included in House Bill 152 is a one-time payment of $10 million 
to Berlioz County, and some of that money uh, has been quoted going towards behavioral health issues. And the county tells KRQE specifically it would fund training for officers to better respond to mental health uh, crises. It would also fund more health clinics. Uh, we've been waiting for this for a long time here in the county. In fact, uh, voters approved some money for this some years ago. It hasn't really been spent. So my question, is this the right school of thought when it comes to finding uh, long-term solutions to the crime problem? There are multiple component parts to, to address in the issue within the criminal justice system and those mm -hmm. that support the criminal justice system and definitely mental health, behavioral health. Those are critical issues, especially when you look at some of the data that, that I've seen out there uh, that uh, a, a huge percentage, I'm thinking in the area of 60 to 70 percent of those incarcerated had some mental health issues. So I think if you look at those kind of numbers, that in itself is telling a story that if we're able to reduce some of the mental health issues uh, that lead to criminal behavior, that we it may have over, uh, may have an overall reduction in crime. I, I think mm -hmm. that's, and I, I don't want to say a good start because this is something that our community and communities across the state and country have been working on, and we realize that that's a problem. So this is just another piece that I think will help contribute to our efforts to start to, to reduce crime. So I think it's a positive step. Mm -hmm. and Rebecca, interestingly, there's a controversial tweak, tweak to the pretrial detention process. We've talked about that a lot here on the show, certainly. Um, it's made it through one committee that's despite some skepticism, the bill would force defendants to prove they aren't a danger to society when requesting pretrial release. Boy, this is a big one for some folks, and especially for conservatives. Is this too much of a risk, uh, given it could be ruled un unconstitutional, especially? Well, I think it's important to note that um, that this is, you know, House Bill 5 is a bipartisan bill. And so they're working mm -hmm. really closely together to try and get ahead and, and, and acknowledge that there are some constitutional issues with this bill. And even going so far as to saying, you know, potentially making a, a constitutional amendment, taking it to the voters so that it has, you know, if they make changes to this, uh, to the pre-child retention, that it has um, a much more, uh, a better chance of, of actually lasting. Whatever they come up with, I think, you know, that it's great that there's huge packages of crime bills. A lot of them are so much about, you know, increasing the penalties for this right. or, or that, you know, they're, they're larger deterrents. But mm -hmm. in New Mexico, catch and release is a household term, not like tingly beach catch and release. We talk about catch and release for dangerous criminals. So this is something that is widely known in New Mexico. It's not just us that are talking about it. It's criminals that know there's no teeth that they're going to get in and they're going to get right back out again. I heard Raul Torres uh, speak a few, uh, I guess, probably about a year and a half ago. And he and he gave the parallel to um, to parenting a toddler. If your toddler does something that they know is bad and you say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to punish you. right. I'm just going to take this toy away. And then you come back 10 months later and try to punish the toddler for that right. offense. You know, it doesn't work. That's not how parenting works, and that's not how criminal justice should work. So I think it's really important that we that we you know acknowledge that there are some there are some other things out there. But I think we've got to find and pressure our legislators to find uh, solutions that will work right now. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, let me ask you. Let me keep you here for a quick sec. Is the idea of stricter gun laws you just mentioned, gun possession uh, charges, especially? Is this a meaningful deterrent? Uh, this is a big debate over years that criminals really don't care what the deterrence is to having a gun. They just want a gun for whatever reason. What, what's your opinion on that? So never having been charged with a criminal gun thing. I, I can't speak for everyone, but sure. to me, it feels like what good is the is the the larger penalty? What good is the the um, the stricter the stricter penalty um, if they don't think it's going to stick? You know, if mm -hmm. they don't think that there is really um, a, a danger that they are going to be um, arrested and uh, and put into jail and separated from their families and, and all of the things that the criminal justice system was kind of just the, the penal system was set up to deter. Uh, mm -hmm. If they don't think they're going to get caught, then what difference does it make a, a, a first degree this or a fourth degree that if it's not going to stick, then it's I, I personally, I don't think it's enough of a deterrent. But I, again, that's just me. Sure. That's why we have you. It's your personal opinion. No worries there. Uh, Sophie, interestingly, the movement um, in recent years on police reform, I'm very interested in your opinion on this. Are, are any of these measures, you know, how 
much should Democrats here locally be leaning into that at this point under this idea that we're now tackling crime? Are, do those two things fit together? I think I think they do. And actually, the the bill that Ed was talking about earlier regarding um, mental health support and, um, you know, support of our, our social so services and behavioral health. I, I think that that is actually a signal. Um, it, it does include training for police officers. Um, and so it, it feels to me like that's part of a movement toward Yes, intervention in how policing happens, how policing works, with right. more of a, a a more nuanced view of what's happening in the criminal justice system. So, I'm not 100% sure I've answered your question, but I definitely think that that bill in particular is is geared toward what a, a number of reformers are trying to get to. Mm -hmm. um, Ed, let me take the same question you know, defund the police, let's just put it out there, all the things that have been out there in the public's uh, purview for a long time. Then we do this big turnaround and, and it's time to get tough on crime. And I'm saying this is, this is how some people hear this out there, so to speak. How, again, same question for, to Sophie, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, and I think when you talk about defunding uh, the criminal justice, not defund, defunding police, I mm -hmm. think you really need to define your terms to ex exactly what that what that means. The police need resources to do their job, to be effective, to do their job, and so defunding in itself, in its pure term, to take money away is is something that I'm sure a lot of law enforcement uh, agencies um, would would reject because it then doesn't allow them to do the work that they're tasked to do. Which brings up another question: What are they tasked to do? Uh, and right. sometimes they're being overtasked, and so we need to continue to take a look at what law enforcement is, is expected to do and create a balance be, uh, and maybe uh, continue to, to, to parse out some of those tasks. And I, I think uh, the uh, Mayor Keller and, and, and his team has created this community service you know, agency that is, that is trying to do just that. But I think when mm -hmm. it comes to uh, uh, crime prevention, I think there is a balance. Uh, crime prevention is probably the key component. If we're effective, at, at preventing crime, there really isn't much need for, for enforcement and prosecution. So uh, prevention mm -hmm. is, is gonna be a, a key component. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you follow this prevention, intervention, enforcement and prosecution, uh, the more we prevent, the less we'll need resources on the other end. But you know, right now we're, we're, in, we're in a pickle because we haven't done a great job at preventing crime. Right. Rebecca, give me the last cut at this. I, I, I'm, I'm curious kind of looking ahead a little bit, is there a danger for Democrats if what gets passed out of this session just isn't tough enough for a lot of people? Well, we are seeing an influx of, uh, of, of non-New Mexicans moving into New Mexico because they, they see that we are a superior state to live in as far as quality of life goes. Uh, and so, you know, like it or not, they're coming from other places outside of New Mexico and they will register to vote here. And if they, mm -hmm. uh, as well as those of us who have lived in this state and, and, and been born and raised in this state, like, like overwhelmingly, we will get to a point if we haven't already gotten there that um, lawmakers, elected officials will be called to task for not figuring this out. We've had mm -hmm. this crime problem. This is not new. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, as we've seen, even in local school board elections recently, like big flips, you know, we will see flips across the board if the public feels like it's not being addressed effectively. Right. Good point. Good last point there. Again, if you are interested in all the legislative coverage, I encourage you to sign up, subscribe to that Your New Mexico Government or YNMG podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We're doing that with KUNM Radio. And we'll have you up to date on all things in the Roundhouse. We're going to stay in the Roundhouse now with our line group. Uh, we also know that there are a lot of education issues moving through the legislature this year. The uh, state budget, which includes raises, large raises for educators pretty much across the board, is on the fast track. Uh, and uh, just waiting for a couple votes, but passing out a committee and the House floor and so it is on the way, but there are also a slew of bills that really directly address the Yazi Martinez lawsuit, which is something we've talked about a ton on the show. 
from several years ago where a judge found that the state was not living up to its constitutional obligation to provide equal uh, educational opportunities to all New Mexico students, particularly minority students, Native American students, special needs students. There is a slew of bills on that front making their way through the legislative session. And it always goes back to this conversation about money, because many of these bills uh, are allocating more money to these efforts. And as you will hear, some of the line panelists, as is echoed time and time again, want to know if this is just a matter of money or if we need to rethink our entire education system and love to know what you think about that. You can drop us a line here or hit us up on social media. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, we're all those places. Let us know what you think about this approach to trying to rectify the Yazzie Martinez case. But for now, here again, Gene Grant and The Line. Thanks to environment reporter Laura Paskus and to Jerry Redfern from Capital in Maine. Uh, you can watch Laura's full interview online right now. Just search for Our Land on our Facebook page. Now, turning to education, legislators in Santa Fe are considering new strategies in response to the 2018 Yazzie Martinez lawsuit. A judge ordered the state to make public education more equitable for minorities, particularly Native American students. A trio of bills would pour $70 million into changing lesson plans and creating more programs for Native students. After all of this time, Ed Perea, do these bills go far enough? Very simple question to start us off. No, is a, is a short answer. Do they go far okay. enough? I think there's so much more that needs to, needs to be done. You know, the Martinez Yazzie lawsuit, uh, really, is, I was a, a member of the, uh, the Martinez side. Uh, that uh, help facilitate uh, the the lawsuit, and so I'm very very familiar with with the issues uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, that came up as a result of uh, of this lawsuit. And, and I know the the Yazi team has been doing an exceptional job on their end, really trying to promote uh, the needs of uh, of the interest of, of Native Americans, and I think that's highly critical. I think we need to continue to do that and, and maximize our efforts to do that. There is, however, the Martinez side that we really need to place a, a, a focus on as well. In this legislative session, we're hearing a lot about the, about the Yazi piece and the monies and revenues and funding that's going into Native American needs, which is critically important. Don't want to take anything away from there, from that. Mm-hmm. But we're not hearing as much from the Martinez side. There are critical needs on the Martinez side as well that is being overshadowed. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I would encourage the legislature to continue to work together to collaborate so the needs of all New Mexicans on both sides of the lawsuit uh, are met. You know, special education is, is a critical need. I know there's funding on the Yazi piece to address some of the special education needs on tribal lands. But outside of the tribal lands, there are many special education needs as well that need to be addressed. And we could go back to the, to the crime and crime prevention issue. These are all crime prevention <laughs> public safety matters as well. So I'd like to hear a little more uh, from, from those uh, legislative uh, Martinez proponents and, and, and put them a few things forward uh, that are going to support the Martinez side of that lawsuit as well. Uh, so mm-hmm. the sh- again, going back to the short answer, is it enough? No, more needs to be done. Absolutely. Uh, Rebecca, interestingly, uh, State Rep. Uh, Derek Alente, Democrat from San Diego Pueblo, as you know, he says it's more than throwing money at the problem. He's behind the three bills, by the way. I should have mentioned uh, House Bills 87, 88, and 90. Um, he says the legislation was strategically crafted to address prioritized needs, uh, areas of need. Is it worth the delay knowing that this was the approach when drafting these bills in the first place? Well, I think it's important to note that he he pushed some bills in this the last session uh, that mm-hmm. didn't go very far, and he's and he's taking ownership and saying I learned a lot from that. I didn't gotcha. do enough to to build the foundation, but I really have to applaud uh, Pod Representative Lente for acknowledging the fact that we cannot just throw money at a problem and expect it to change. Um, I do personally feel like this is the right direction to go to Ed's point to address this specific student group. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I feel like if the state were best equipped to to provide um, culturally appropriate educational standards for Native American children, then state wouldn't be in this position in the first place. Like, I Mm -hmm. I agree that there are cultural things that we have to to empower uh, our Native American community to do what's best uh, for their students. Um, but also, with that being said, it's not 
responsible to just say, here's money and let us know how it all works out. Or to Ed's right. point, wait 20 years to see if, if anything has changed and, and then say, oh, well, we can point back to this. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would caution um, uh, uh, Lente about, or not about, just the legislature in general, um, mm -hmm. trying to have some level standard of what the agreement is. He mentions that there will be an agreement between the state and between the tribal communities um, and I would, uh, I, we've seen in the past that sometimes that happens where every tribal community has a different agreement. Uh, right. And so I would suggest that we just look at a standard across the board. This is what we expect. And, and this is how the children will benefit. These are the metrics. Having that be standardized to the best of their ability so that so we can really measure it. Mm -hmm. Interesting points there. And Sophie, let me uh, kind of put a little some numbers. Uh, Representative Lente says it's, it's about more than money. But there is a lot of money connected to these efforts, and House Bill 87 would appropriate $20 million from the state's general fund to the Indian Education Act uh, to provide educational funding for the tribes. That would be starting in 2024 to create cultural relevant learning programs, et cetera. Now, House Bill 88 would appropriate $21.5 million to help tribal education departments develop learning plans and such, and that would take place in 2024. And House Bill 90 has a price tag of $29.6 million to four state colleges and three tribal colleges for 53 initiatives, such as building a Native American teacher pipeline, which, of course, is critically important. So it's really not about the levels of money. Is that what we're saying here, that we're, the levels of money were matched to a need? Is that appropriately put? Well, let me start with this. It's not enough money. I appreciate, okay. I mean, I appreciate that the legislature is, is, is working with what I'm sure they, they think they've got, but we're talking mm -hmm. about generations of underfunding that we're trying to, you know, that they were hoping to overcome. So something like 20 million, 30 million, this is a, a drop in the bucket, I think, compared to the need. Now, it will fund some really important initiatives. The idea mm -hmm. of building the pipeline of Native American educators is huge. Will there right. need to be more money to sustain that and to support it? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I even to the extent that um, some of these funds are recurring funds, um, you know, looking to build capacity, et cetera. I, we can't sort of think to ourselves at this moment, three and done, right? We, to Ed's point, we have an entire, you know, additional section of the population that we need to focus on the Martinez side of the, of the suit. But also, um, this I, I really feel like this is small given the scale of the problem. And and I applaud um, Representative Lenti for getting the ball rolling. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I think we we have to assume that there's a lot more to come in order to sustain. Um, and build upon any any advances that happen over the next couple of years as a result of this funding. Mm -hmm. You know, Ed, to Sophie's point, Representative Patricia Royball Caballero, she's right here in Albuquerque, as you know, a Democrat. She said the very same thing. We're talking about getting after generations of inequity here with this money. It can only be, and I'm going to, I don't want to speak for her, certainly, but it can only be seen as maybe the beginning of something more. Uh, but money issues are always problematic. How do we how do we wind our way through this discussion? about how much is too much, how much is not enough. It's a, it's a tricky one. That's right. I think, uh, and going back to Rebecca's point, is we need mm -hmm. some matrix to determine whether what we are doing is effective or not. Because I, I agree with the others. We just can't throw money at a problem. But what are the matrix? What are the deliverables? What do we hope to accomplish and how are we going to measure it? And we can't measure it in one generation because this is, is, isn't a singular generation issue. It's a multi generational issue. I, I uh, had a conversation a while back as we were discussing the discussing the lawsuit, and I recall talking to the president of the organization at the time and, and reminded her that the conversation that her and I were having is a conversation that I remember in high school way back, in decades back, and we keep talking about the same problems over and over again, but what are we doing? So we, we want to be very careful just about not throwing money at the issues and make it clear that we have clear deliverables and matrix to identify whether we have, uh, if we're improving in the in the various areas, and if we're not, then we need to change things up. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we need to continue to to look at how funding is being appropriated and ensure that it's not a one time thing and that this continues to go on, reoccurring uh, year after year, to ensure that we are um, we are moving forward with our uh, the shortcomings that we have in our educational system. 
That's right. You know, Rebecca, we and on the Senate side of things, we have a memorial for what that's worth out there now. I mean, um, which asks the state public ed, ed department to develop a comprehensive plan to address the needs of the student groups tied to Yazzie Martinez. But more importantly, and we just got a minute here, uh, an annual report to the legislature about the plan. Uh, does that ring your bell appreciably? I mean, a plan's a plan, but yeah, how, how so do you make that? It's funny. I actually have that highlighted and circled with a frowny face on my notes. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> because, <laughs> because uh, you know, a, a Senate memorial is synonymous with unfunded mandate. And any memorial is unfunded mandate. They're saying, we want this done, but we're not going to put the resources behind it to do it. If, if it was something that they really thought needed to be done, then they should have made it a bill and they should have put some uh, appropriations behind it. But um, I, I think it's I think it's discouraging. It's concerning that these three specific bills are the only bills addressing Yazi Martinez in, in the session right now, in a session where we're just supposed to be talking about money, but we're also talking about other things too. Um, and I think it is, um, again, unrealistic to think that the Senate would say we're gonna have a, a, an, um, a memorial and then ask you to put together a plan that we're not going to provide you the resources to do we're not going to provide you the expertise to do and then you need to come back every year and report on how the plan that we didn't fund is going and and where's the execution behind the plan now i i will admit i am a, a, a fan of plans because i don't like the idea of throwing money at something and not knowing what you're going to do with it or what it's going to cost but this also seems kind of like well, we're going to make a gesture and we're not going to think it through Thank you all for that discussion. That was really interesting. We'll check back with you once more to talk about how New Mexico involved in an investigation into false 2020 election sort of certificates filed in favor of Donald Trump. Definite theme to this episode in terms of legislative coverage, a lot going on in just a 30-day session. And one of the big uh, things that the governor pointed out again in her state of the state, we've heard a lot of scuttle about, even though Right now, it is tabled in committee, could come back, but the governor has talked recently about wanting to make New Mexico a hydrogen hub. Uh, hydrogen is uh, a fuel that can be made with renewable energy. It can also be made uh, out of fossil fuel extraction, which is how we're talking about potentially doing it in New Mexico and carving out a new industry that is more environmentally friendly, but is it friendly enough? Uh, bottom line, you're hearing a lot of talk about this, and if you're like us, you're wondering, what is all this technology? What does it mean? Why are we pushing for this now? Is it viable? Is it ready for prime time? So we wanted to get a hydrogen primer, and no better place to do that than Jerry Redfern, who reports for Capital and Maine, and uh, that is a publication you can find online focused on the fossil fuel industry. He's done a lot of work and a lot of research on the hydrogen and the dynamics here in New Mexico. We were only able to bring uh, a few minutes of this conversation into our on-air show this week, but it was part of a Facebook Live that Laura Paskus, who also does some editing work in her spare time for Capital and Maine, uh, she did uh, sat down with Jerry Redfern last week. We want to bring you that full interview here so you have a better idea what all this hydrogen talk is about. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning. I'm here with Jerry Redfern. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Laura. How are you doing? I'm good. So in the interest of disclosure here, Jerry and I work together at Capital in Maine, which is a media outlet based in Los Angeles. And today we're going to be talking about some of his reporting on hydrogen. But um, as part of a project called The Slick at Capital in Maine, he's been reporting for the past year, two years, I can't quite remember, on the fossil fuel industry in New Mexico. So thanks again, Jerry. Oh, yeah, this is my great pleasure. <laughs> So the governor recently um, was pushing and legislators introduced the Hydrogen Hub Development Act. We're going to get a, into some of the specifics in a minute. But first, I wanted to talk about like why all this talk about hydrogen in New Mexico lately? Um, it's on the governor's agenda. The federal delegation is interested. Like, where is this all coming from? Well, I think there are a couple of different issues at play that all come together particularly well in New Mexico. The first thing is that hydrogen is actually kind of a, a really neat fuel in that if you use it as a fuel, there are a couple of ways you can use it. If you use it through what's called 
a power cell, it produces a whole bunch of energy and the only things that come out the other side of it are water and heat. So it's an extremely green fuel if you're able to use it that way. Um, another, another way to use it is just to straight burn it. You know, like think of the, the Hindenburg blimp going up back in the 30s. I mean, it's extremely flammable, so you can use it as a fuel that way. It's not quite as clean, but it's still a, a fairly clean uh, fuel if, if you burn it like through a power plant or something like that. Um, the thing that brings it to New Mexico in particular is that hydrogen is often made, most often made, far and away most often made from natural gas in a process where you essentially you really, you really compress the natural gas and you heat it up and the hydrogen atoms start popping off and you collect those and you get your hydrogen gas. And part of the big problem though is what do you do with the leftovers of that and how much natural gas it takes to make that hydrogen. So it sounds to me like when you burn it as a fuel, it's clean, but like the production of making the hydrogen is maybe not so clean. Am I getting that right? Oh yeah, for sure. The, actually, when you burn it, you, you do still get some pollutants off the far end. There, there are various things that would show up as actually, uh, they would need to be regulated. If you were to say, for example, in New Mexico, have a power plant that burns hydrogen, you'd have to get permits to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, the, the main concern is the pipeline that gets natural gas into a thing like a power plant or to a distribution center because of problems New Mexico has historically and continues to have with leaks and such from natural gas production from the well to the production facility. And so I've heard and read in your stories, there's two basically kinds of hydrogen, green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. What What's the difference between those two? Well, actually to be fully accurate and it's getting a little bit wonky, there's a, there's a full like rainbow of hydrogen flavors. <laughs> but the, and actually three, or the, there are three that are the most talked about. Um, and green hydrogen, we'll take it from there, is the absolute cleanest hydrogen that we now know how to make. And it's essentially you take um, water, plain water, and you zap it with a whole bunch of electricity. And if that electricity comes from a renewable resource itself, that's where we get the idea of green hydrogen. You have the very, very clean hydrogen fuel made from a very, um, you know, non-greenhouse gassy process. Um, blue hydrogen, which is what we're mostly talking about in New Mexico, comes where you take a fuel stock like natural gas, which has lots of climate implications involved in it, you break the hydrogen off of it, but you're left with an awful lot of CO2 after the fact, and you have to do something with that. And if you're able to get rid of upstream emissions, like I was talking about a little bit ago, and you're able to sequester that CO2 somehow, generally underground, then it gets that designation of blue hydrogen, which is, you know, kind of green. Blue's kind of green, right? Um, but the majority of hydrogen, as I was also talking about earlier, the vast overwhelming majority that we have in use in the country today is what's known as gray hydrogen, where you take the natural gas, you crack the hydrogen atoms off of it, and essentially just vent the carbon dioxide and other pollutants into the sky after the fact. And it's a, it's a pretty dirty process. Hence gray, I see now. <laughs> I was expecting <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a different color on the rainbow than gray, but it makes sense now. Um, and so hydrogen hub, where is this idea coming from? Um, it just seemed like all of a sudden there was all this talk around hydrogen, hydrogen hubs. Like, why? <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good question because it, I think, again, there are a couple of different angles that are coming together in dealing with this. Um, I think, well, to be blunt, the main reason is that in Joe Biden's, the, the first of his um, Build Back plans, um, he offered up $8 billion, with a B, dollars to build up to four of these hydrogen hubs around the United States. And, you know, our legislators in Washington and then folks back at the Roundhouse and in Santa Fe saw that and said, oh, hey, we could do that. We should we should step up and do that sort of thing. The other side of it is that hydrogen as a fuel on a global scale is really seen in many quarters as a replacement fuel for, say, regular gasoline or diesel fuel in heavy machinery and manufacturing processes, where you can turn these very, very dirty manufacturing or transportation processes into much more green things. And that's that's seen as being very important, you know, globally. So people do want 
to get this hydrogen going. The big question is how and where. Um, and then the other thing that goes along with that is that, at least in the United States, for sure at this point, um, it takes a, a fair bit of subsidies to make it profitable for businesses to do this. So all of these things sort of work together to, to point to New Mexico. As you were talking about this, and I, I don't mean to go off on too much of a tangent, but as you were talking about that, um, kind of this, this move to clean up some of these big, you know, sort of manufacturing sectors or transportation sectors with a new cleaner energy, it really reminds me of the conversation that happens sometimes around nuclear energy. People think of that as like a less greenhouse gas intensive electricity source than say, you know, coal or natural gas, but there, there's all these like front end production side problems. You know, here in New Mexico, we can look at the legacy of uranium mining and certainly what to do with the spent fuel. Um, I wonder if, you know, if you've heard conversations around winners and losers when it comes to hydrogen, like maybe there are some winners who get to use that cleaner fuel, but losers on the production end in terms of, you know, increased natural gas production or emissions or have you heard conversations like that at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, these sorts of externalities that are involved in particular with natural gas production have all sorts of people up in the San Juan Basin in particular um, very nervous and unhappy about the prospect of this showing up in their backyard. Um, I mean, the San Juan Basin has been economically depressed for several years, and I think that a lot of, um, shall we say, economic leaders in that neck of the woods, which tends toward natural gas producers and people affiliated with those things, they're very excited about this possibility of restarting the whole natural gas industry up there and getting it chugging once again. Um, but the problem is, if you drive around up there, you see pretty quickly that you have lots of people living amid an awful lot of natural gas wells, and those natural gas wells have a long history and documented history of leaking. And that creates you know, global climate issues, but it also creates health issues for the people who live right there on the ground. And those people who live right there on the ground, those frontline communities are not even a little bit, <laughs> many of them are not even a little bit excited about having that start up again in force. Yeah. So the Governor's Hydrogen Hub Development Act, can you explain um, what that bill was and what we saw happen with that last week? Well, we should say was with an asterisk because, <laughs> the, and I'll, I'll take that sort of backwardsly, um, the, it was up for debate in the House session, which is where these things normally start. And after nearly four hours of back and forth talk about it, which was kind of interesting. I'll get back to that in a second. Um, the legislators didn't actually kill it outright. They tabled it, which does allow the possibility that it could be rewritten, it could be rejiggered, it could be brought back up for debate down the line. But since we have this very compressed um, session that's supposed to be devoted to monetary issues, that looks probably unlikely. So <laughs> put that to the side for now. So it's probably dead, but we don't know if it'll come back like some sort of hydrogen zombie, if that remains to be seen. Um, the main parts of the bill were actually a series of tax credits, mainly, and uh, tax regulations to put into place to create incentives for businesses to show up in New Mexico to make hydrogen. <laughs> that's that's kind of what it gets down to. And then also a, a series of rather particular tax credits and breaks for people who would use hydrogen in power plants to create electricity. Um, and those look to be rather particularly pointed to two projects, um, one outside of grants um, and another one up in the Four Corners region that are hoping to revive a pair of uh, mothballed coal-powered uh, power plants. Um, and the hope is to essentially rejigger the burning part of the power plant and squirt hydrogen in there and ignite it and boil water and um, make electricity in the way that we know about making electricity in the past. So that's those are sort of the thumbnail outlines of what was included in the bill. Um, yeah, kind of like that. And so this committee hearing in the House last week, um, who kind of how did that vote break down? <laughs> I think the you know this is this is pure speculation on my part, but just watching the faces 
of the people voting on it, I think everybody was a little surprised by how it turned out. Um, because strangely, Republicans were voting against it. And you would think that normally, especially a number of the people on that committee are very, very pro oil and gas. And creating these hydro a hydrogen hub would have really opened up natural gas development, would have really promoted opening up natural gas development. But they voted against it because they said it wasn't properly funded and gave too much away in tax breaks, which, you know, might seem like <laughs> an odd thing considering that, you know, we have, as a country, have given all sorts of tax breaks to oil and gas development for decades now. Be that as it may, um, that's that's the way that they voted. Most of the Democrats on the committee voted in favor of it, uh, going along with the governor's hopes, although there were some comments for hopeful changes down the line to uh, streamline some things and maybe knock some of the tax breaks out of there. Um, but I also think that there were Democrats on that committee who thought that there were real problems with the environmental background, like we were just talking about, of creating hydrogen from, in particular from natural gas. You know, I'd like to interject just one thing there. I keep talking about natural gas in all of this and should point out to be completely clear and open that uh, Secretary uh, Kenny at the NMED, at the Environment Department, who's also been promoting this on behalf of the governor's regularly pointed out that this would allow people to make hydrogen from, oh, let's say agricultural things as essentially collecting cow farts, <laughs> things that come out of cow manure, cow manure ponds or at garbage dumps and stuff like that, which also do release some methane, which could then be turned into hydrogen. But there's no way that those things would compare with the amount of hydrogen that you'd get out of making it from natural gas. So just, just to be clear, I wanna be open and clear about that particular of things yeah so that again like the hydrogen issue just seems politically a little bit confusing i guess in new mexico yes. where we have a democratic governor who's been uh you know directing agencies to work on cutting greenhouse gas emissions there's new reporting rules all kinds of things like that and yet um in her state of the state she talked about this hydrogen hub um that same state of the state address was disrupted by protesters, um, you know, registering their opposition to this hydrogen issue. And and then we have Republicans also not supporting it. Can you explain any of this sort of political confusion to me? Yeah, well, I can I can I can only say that I can try. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a, a full great explanation for what exactly has gone on there. And, uh, you know, an interesting thing is I think you've noted in the past in your own reporting is that one thing she, that uh, Governor Lohan Grisham did not talk about was climate change in that whole thing. And that had to this point been one of her key issues since she came into office. And that was kind of a surprising omission. Um, but I think the politics of this are a little bit funky, but they're explained in a paper that came out along with the Hydrogen Hub Act when it was released. It, it feels like a month ago, but I think it's only a little over a week ago. Um, and that paper was actually written by a company started by a guy who's one of the best known oil and gas promoters up in the San Juan Basin and who owns a business that drills natural gas wells up there. Um, and I think that pretty much uh, tells an awful lot of where this was coming from. I think that in many ways, the governor was trying to actually thread a couple of different needles. She's hoping to be able to get through that needle of green hydro or hydrogen as a green fuel, as a very you know greenhouse gas friendly fuel itself, and bring that up as a thing that we could do here, while also at the same time trying to thread that needle of um, throwing a bone to the oil and gas industry and saying, here's some possible development that could work for you. And then we could have this clean fuel that comes out of it after the fact, and then try to wrap those things together. And it doesn't seem to have worked to this point. <laughs> yeah. So do you think regardless of what happens, um, even if the bill doesn't come back this session, do you think we're going to continue to see these really, I mean, I feel like very robust conversations around hydrogen in New Mexico, or is this something that's gonna sort of peter away? I 
think we're going to see more of it. It really depends upon how much of that federal money the state is still able to pull in to develop these particular plans. Um, I think that a lot of the tax breaks that were in the governor's initial plan were, she was hoping to have them, I think, offset by those tax breaks coming in from the federal government. So I'm not sure how that will work in the future. Um, but there are big plans already underway or already happening to deal with hydrogen in the state of New Mexico um, with or without government help to get that done. So I think that's going to continue to happen. And if that continues to be done based on natural gas production and it causes an uptick again in gas production, particularly in the Four Corners region in the San Juan Basin, I think we'll be hearing a fair bit about this into the future. So just lastly, I wanted to touch on, we've talked about what hydrogen could mean for increasing natural gas production potentially in the state. You had a story recently at Capital in Maine about the new reporting um, measures. Can you talk a little bit about what we know and what we don't know about emissions from the fossil fuel industry in the state? Yes, we know a lot and we don't know a lot all at the same time. It was a it's a rather fascinating data set if uh, you can pull it down and spend time to, to look through it. But the main thing is that back in last May, as part of the new methane rules that went into effect from the Oil Conservation Division, which is the government agency that um, essentially keeps track of the oil and gas coming out of the ground in the state and makes sure it all gets taxed and that we get our state's money worth of it. Um, they implemented new rules that require oil and gas producers to account for and tally all of their leaking and venting and spills and everything um, that, that they're doing. Whereas in the past, it was a little hit or miss or a lot hit or miss. And yeah, it, it was a lot hit or miss. Let's just say that. Um, and what it showed is that there were a lot of producers who obviously looked to have taken this seriously and noted that they were having an awful lot of vents and particularly flares from natural gas operations or from oil operations um, and to, to levels that we simply had not seen documented before. We'd, we'd known, I think, that this had been going on. We'd, this had been documented um, sort of writ large and roughly by groups like the Environmental Defense Fund and others who got uh, satellite information or did flights over the Permian Basin or the Four Corners and, and from airplanes measured emissions from oil and gas wells or processing places, um, or groups like Earthworks that would send people out on the ground with infrared cameras and look at oil and gas sites and you know note vents and flares and things that were leaking and send it to the state. Um, but this is a much more robust system that relies on the producers themselves to note all of these things themselves in a very detailed manner and submit it regularly to the state. And under the penalty, which didn't happen before, if they, if they don't report this stuff, they could be penalized for it and fined you know, upwards of millions of dollars. So there's a, there's a, distinct, uh, there's a distinct stick there to, to try to keep them in line. But to get back to your, your point too, I mean, so there were a lot of operators that noted huge increases um, you know, year on year of venting, flaring, leaks, spills, etc. And there's no reason to think that they were doing anything different from before. They were just actually reporting it. And then other major producers in the state, very major producers in the state, noticed no differences whatsoever, or their numbers in their reporting actually went down, which is curious, to say the least. <laughs> Well, I'll be interested to see what happens because if I have it right, these reporting uh, future uh, cuts will have to, will be based on this sort of current reporting. So we know how much is being emitted and how much we need to cut emissions into the future. Right. So the state is also implementing uh, as part of the the methane the the methane act that they're that they're creating these rules under these methane rules. Um, producers are required over the next several years to drop um, the amount that they're losing essentially to 2%. So only 2% of what comes out of a well can be lost, however you want to rack up that loss. Um, which actually, if you're talking about stuff like natural gas, that's actually a fairly potent amount of natural gas to be lost to the atmosphere. 
which is kind of a, a different question. But yeah, so this this incident reporting that's going on now that I was just talking about is one way to keep track of who's losing what and how out of their wells. And that's going to become much clearer over the next couple of months with more reporting and different types of reporting that operators have to finish up. Okay. Well, Jerry Redfern, thanks for talking with me about energy and in particular um, helping explain some of this stuff going on with hydrogen. Oh, thank you, Laura. I, I love getting wonky about this. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks, Jerry. See ya. Bye. All right, that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer. We'll be back again tomorrow with our second weekly episode, trying to get ahead of the game again, back on track. We've got more conversation with the line, uh, this time uh, really talking about how New Mexico's now in the national headlines around the January 6th uh, investigation in Congress and specifically how we have got, uh, we are one of seven states where there is fraud allegations out there about uh, fraudulent um, elector certifications for the presidential vote uh, in 2020. And so we'll dive into all of that. We will also be talking about um, the Gaming Commission in New Mexico, uh, a former gaming commissioner. He was recently let go by the governor without much of an explanation. His name is Jeremy Vesbach. We sat down with him to find out what's going on there. They're down to four commissioners, which is just enough to continue doing business. We also have an update from the governor herself and her office about why she made the choices she did. And for those of you who need a primer on the Gaming Commission, we will give that to you as well, what these folks are in charge of. So that's all coming up on the next episode. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy. <laughs>